Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello. How can we turn the oceans green? The only way such dramatic gains are going to be achieved is by going nuclear. In light of the upcoming U.S. midterm elections, how reliable is polling data? If a poll is reasonably well-conducted, it's well-designed, yes, polls can still be trusted, absolutely. And how artificial intelligence is being trialed as a way to cut down on dreaded train delays. We were able to, in real time, estimate the level of busyness and inform the passengers who are waiting for the train. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, the dirty business of shipping. Since steam replaced wind as the principal means of propulsion in the 19th century, ships have relied on particularly filthy fossil fuels. If the world is going to get anywhere near the goal of well below 2%, as enshrined in the Paris Climate Agreement, then cleaning up ship exhaust is going to be incredibly important. To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Ben Sutherland, who has written about it for this week's issue. Hello, Ben. Hello, Ken. Good to be here. My first question is the obvious one, just how dirty is shipping? Very dirty. Estimates put it at about 3% of uh, greenhouse gases. And that's for all sectors, including cars and trucks and so forth. There's an additional problem in that shipping uh, bunker fuel, which is essentially the dregs of refinery plants. It's, It's so thick that it's a solid unless it's heated contains a lot of pollutants like sulfur, which can uh, cause a lot of respiratory diseases. So there's a lot of pressure on shipping to clean up its act. So tell me more about the sulfur problem. Sulfur is a big issue. It's uh, released as a particulate matter, which gets in people's lungs and is responsible for some uh, pretty high numbers of deaths, according to various researchers. The International Maritime Organization has put in place a law which will cut the amount of sulfur allowed in bunker fuel from 3.5% to just 0.5%. So that's a dramatic drop. However, it gets a bit more complicated in that sulfur, when it's in the atmosphere, can actually reflect radiation from the sun and thereby cool the planet. So you really have competing interests here. Do you want to work more on the global warming issue or are you more concerned about uh, respiratory health for humans? Okay, so what else can be done aside from the fuel issue and the sulfur issue to remedy the problems? Well, uh, environmentalist romantics have long wanted to harness sail, figure out various uh, engineering marvels for a modern take on, on sails. For the most part, they have failed. One of the approaches is to actually increase the efficiency of a ship by using various paints that barnacles and algaes and other marine organisms don't like. 
another approach is to actually scrape off the barnacles that do grow. There's an interesting Norwegian firm which has had a lot of success cleaning ships so far out of Southampton, a British port, using uh, water blasters. And they have underwater drones which operate by remote control and they blast water against the ship hulk which reduces the amount of abrasion on the paint but it hits the barnacles almost at a right angle and kind of blasts them off. And their, uh, their big selling point is they have a vacuum system which sucks up all the junk and gunk that's scraped off and uh, hoovers it ashore. It's expensive, however, it costs between about $17,000 and $25,000 per ship. But as one shipping executive told me, the way to think of it is if you're steaming around with barnacles on your ship, it's like swimming with your clothes on. And in some cases, uh, reducing or, or cleaning the hull can reduce your fuel use by about 30% in, in kind of extreme circumstances. 10%, 15% gains in fuel efficiency are more common. What about the fuels themselves? The gains we've talked about will help, but they are unlikely to achieve the 50% reduction in uh, emissions that the International Maritime Organization has decreed for uh, 2050, 50% reduction over 2008 levels. So there's been efforts to look at uh, natural gas, methanol, and uh, even hydrogen. None of those have really taken off yet, but future advances could change the picture. What Lloyd's Register, a London maritime consultancy, says is that the only way such dramatic gains are going to be achieved is by going nuclear. Keep in mind that there are at least 180 small nuclear reactors already at sea powering icebreakers, aircraft carriers, submarines, and so forth. So the technology is out there. However, these are essentially government ships. To make a shift into the private sector is going to take some very, as one consultant put it, uh, the IMO hammer is going to have to hit hard for shippers to, to be able to use nuclear power. So what's the benefit of nuclear and what's the drawback? Well, one of the benefits is that you have absolutely zero emissions. Number two, you wouldn't need as many ships. Nuclear power ships can move at terrifying speeds. So with a smaller number of ships, you could move as many goods as you're currently moving with a larger fleet. And the drawback is the risk of pollution and contamination that has a half-life in the thousands of years. Yes, that's a problem. Uh, a lot of it would really be a political problem. You might have popular movements in ports trying to restrict nuclear ships coming in and so forth. So if that's going to happen, there's going to have to be some strong political support for the move. Ben, this has been really interesting. Thank you very much. Good talking. I appreciate it. Next up, one of my favorite topics, big data. And with the U.S. midterms a week away, I'm joined by Courtney Kennedy from the Pew Research Center to discuss polling data and to understand if polls can be trusted today. The Pew Research Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that conducts public opinion surveys, demographic research, and data-driven social science. I'm also joined by Dan Rosenheck, the data editor of The Economist. Welcome, Courtney, and welcome, Dan. I guess my first question is polling. Can we still actually trust them? It seems like they're on bended knee. Courtney. Yes, if a poll is reasonably well conducted, it's well designed, uh, yes, polls can still be trusted, absolutely. 
Yes, I think that polls can absolutely be trusted, if not necessarily in absolute terms, no more or less than we have trusted them at any other point in the history of polling. Now, I would still flag that in most human endeavors, we've gotten better at things over time. So the fact that polls are merely as good as they were decades ago rather than better suggests that there are probably some factors that are making polling harder that are being counteracted by sort of natural human progress. Let me look at some of those factors. Courtney. Well, I think the key question is trust them to do what? If you're trusting them to call the winner in a close election where, you know, the winner might win by a one or two point margin, polls are really not up to that task. But if you're asking, can you trust a poll to really gauge overall sentiment about the public attitudes on an issue, how um, public sentiment's changing over time, those types of things, polls are definitely up to that challenge. But what are the problems now that we're facing today that we didn't quite face so much in the past? I'd say there's two major ones. There's the overall challenge of cooperation, and that plagues a poll of any type. Even the most rigorously conducted polls face real challenges in terms of getting a high response rate. A more technical challenge has to do with the popularization of using the internet to conduct polling. And the challenge there is that online, you cannot draw a random sample from a nation's population the way that you can offline by sampling, say, home addresses or telephone numbers. So how has Pew dealt with that problem? We sample offline, um, typically using telephone random digit dial methods on both mobile phone numbers and landline phone numbers. Um, But this summer, I'm excited that we're experimenting with drawing random sample of home addresses in the U.S. to recruit to our online panel. So it just costs more, but you can still do it. Absolutely. How does that sound to you, Dan? I think that given the obstacles presented by the difficulty of acquiring a random sample online, internet polls have actually proven to be surprisingly good at, again, missing the result. Most polls miss, but missing maybe by a somewhat bigger margin than, quote, unquote, gold standard traditional phone polling, but not by much. I think part of the reason why that is, at least in the specific area of politics in the U.S., but I bet this extends to a lot uh, more things you might pull on in general, is that the way that pollsters seek to compensate for their non-random samples is by weighting, in particular by demographic weighting, the number of women you have, the number of people with a college degree you have, etc. And as certainly the United States politics has become so much more tribal and so much more closely tied to identity, you can get a lot of information, you can predict very well what somebody's going to think based on a few demographic variables, which in turn makes it easier to weight your sample. Where the action in polling is right now is with the weighting, right? And weighting also explains a lot of what happened with the 2016 polls in terms of why they missed support for Trump. We saw more systematically, you know, what happened in those battleground states in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, that really all missed Trump. One of the big reasons was they weren't weighted properly, right? Pollsters have known for years and years that polls systematically have this problem in which people that are, who are more educated are more likely to take surveys. Okay, we can fix that. We just weight down university grads and we weight up people with lower levels of education. The state-level polls in the U.S. in 2016, most of them were not doing that. So they had too many university grads and the 
in the in 2016, the university grads broke heavily toward Clinton, while people with lower levels of education supported Trump. So that was sort of a systematic thing that was wrong with the polls, and it had everything to do with waiting. What about facts? Do facts still matter to the public? Well, the scientific research on that is not terribly optimistic if if you're really clinging to the idea that facts matter, right? I think um, uh, it's been proven that people are more persuaded, right? Mass publics are more persuaded by um, their identity, their political identity, their cultural identity, and narratives about what's explaining uh, what's going on in their lives, right? And so um, you can talk to people till they're blue in the face about fact after fact, but that doesn't tend to move them emotionally. It doesn't tend to necessarily shape their political behavior. So what does? Um, charismatic figures, people that, um, again, can tell a compar- compelling narrative about you know, I've got this political message and it's going to resonate with you because I can articulate something powerful about your political identity. I can talk about the factors in your life and explain away your problems, talk about the solutions that you want, but really evoking characteristics of that political identity. Doesn't this insight invalidate everything that you do for a living? No, not necessarily. I mean, uh, just because People working uh, day-to-day jobs, have busy lives, don't read our reports. That doesn't mean they they don't have any impact, right? I mean, we like to have our data available for the public who is interested in seeing what the facts are to have those facts available. But there's other audiences too, right? We also um, put our data out there for people in journalism to be able to have a base of facts on which they can report the news and for policymakers so they have a base of facts to form good policy. But a single demagogue can undermine all the facts with a good narrative. We can't solve every solution, right? We can only try to contribute what we can to a healthy democracy. Absolutely. Courtney, thank you very much. Dan, thank you. Here at The Economist, Dan and the data team have developed a rich statistical model to forecast who may win the U.S. midterm elections. To access our predictive model, go to economist.com slash midterms with an S. And this week, we introduce a new feature on the podcast, Babbage Listener Feedback. Each week, we plan to select one or several comments from many of the written ones we receive and ask the writer to record an excerpt to include on the program. This week's comment is about our segment on robots from two weeks ago. It is from Eric Honnert, a doctoral candidate in mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. I thoroughly enjoy the show, but I was disappointed by your segment on the Atlas robot by Boston Dynamics. You systematically dismissed any of its accomplishments. I heard from a Boston Dynamics engineer earlier this year that it's made many technological advancements with Atlas in terms of its strength-to-weight ratio and real-time control. Now, I won't deny that their recent video was a stunt, but a very impressive stunt. The company had to have enough confidence in its real-time control to make up for any random error that could have occurred in order to perform the parkour without any tether to the robot. That's an impressive feat. If you compare this version of Atlas with the Atlas and the DARPA robot challenge several years ago, it's leaps and bounds ahead of its predecessor. Thank you, Eric. And at Babbage, we look forward to other listeners' comments. And finally, I ventured out of the studio to nearby Charing Cross Station in London to talk about my journey into work this morning. Trains are typically approaching on time, but sometimes they're late. And you see a scramble and a jumble of people. They're acting like Visgoths, completely barbaric, trying to get in in the chaos of 
exiting the train and getting into the train at exactly the same time rather than waiting. But not all bustling cities have this problem. To compare it, I asked Miki Kobayashi, an editorial researcher at The Economist Tokyo Bureau, about the transport system there. I am currently at Otomochi Station, which is one of Tokyo's largest train stations, as well as one of the busiest in metropolitan Tokyo. Now, as the train is approaching, as the train is coming into Otomochi Station, the people that are waiting to board the train usually wait very politely for their turn, usually in twos. The people that are waiting for their turn to board, they usually wait at the sides of the doors of the train and wait for people to exit the train first. And as Japanese people are quite well known for, we are quite punctual. We're punctual to meetings, we're punctual to dinner plans, etc. And I think the train system in Japan, not only in Tokyo but beyond, has adopted this Japanese way of life. Trains almost always arrive on time and leave on time. And when they don't, even by a minute or two, uh, the train staff apologize on the loudspeaker. One of the problems we face here in London is the efficiency of getting on and off the trains. Finding a way to manage it and make it smoother would mean that more trains would leave on time and reduce delays. I spoke with Dr. Plamen Angeloff, a professor of intelligent systems at Lancaster University in Britain. We talked about how his team is developing an AI system that can improve platform management. The main problem we know from everyday life, probably, especially underground in London and big cities, it is about safely and quickly offloading passengers getting off the train with possibly luggage, uh, bicycles and other pushchairs or scooters, and passengers who want to get on the train to get on safely. And a computerized system which may help both passengers as well as staff on the train station platforms is something that caught our imagination. So what was your solution? So we started from uh, computer vision and artificial intelligence point of view. In this sense, there was a lot of possibility to use so-called legacy or existing hardware, making the system cheaper. They are mostly used for uh, security, let's say, so-called CCTV, on the coaches, but also on platforms as well. So starting from computerized analysis of the video footage, we were able to, in real time, estimate the level of busyness and inform the passengers who are waiting for the train, as well as staff, if some emergency occurs. So what's special about the technology that you've created? Is it in fact the image recognition that it can identify where there's a crowd, or is it the fact that you're doing the processing at the camera level? Yeah, there are several aspects. One of them is actually uh, image processing, but there is also elements of artificial intelligence. There is also communication. Even there is a human-computer interaction aspect because we used for our demo LED trips to, to use lighting on the platform. So there are a number of aspects. It's not just computer vision. And what is specific probably is that uh, such a system works in real time. It takes as input a very complex video footage, not still images. So a lot of images and real-life video stream and is processing this very quickly in real time on very small computational devices because the processing is lean or efficient and in this way solving several problems. Now this seems like an awful lot of work just to save a couple seconds. 
How big is the problem? How much time and cost can we save? Saving one or two minutes actually may not sound as important, but in fact, in many cases, it leads to much longer delays because these delays accumulate. Once one train is late with one or two minutes behind the schedule, then it may accumulate over the journey. In addition to that, there are safety uh, aspects. Sometimes, even if they are rare, there are fatalities or, or close to fatalities cases which can be reduced or avoid, avoided or their effect can be minimized. And also even if you want the, the pleasure of journey because nobody wants to go through a kind of busy door just to discover that the next one or two coaches is much better to go. Dr. Angelov, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. As I'm about to board my train, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.